0: Coming to you from the Motor City.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. We have something a little different today. If you follow us on social media, a few months ago we asked for our listeners' favorite forensic pathologists from TV and movies, and everyone delivered. We received some great answers, so thank you for the response. But now it's time to sit back and relax as the doctors discuss and... Maybe destroy our
2: favorite TV Emmys.
0: Hello, and thank you for joining us again for another episode of Detroit's Daily Docket. We're all in studio today for a light-hearted talk about how medical examiners and coroners are portrayed in the media. Just like with this podcast, the public at large is fascinated with medicine. Back where there were brick-and-mortar bookstores on every corner and you could walk freely through malls, you could walk up and down the aisles finding tons of fictional and non-fictional books on medicine. Today, you just need to turn on your TV or your computer, browse Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, or pretty much every streaming service that you can imagine, and you'll find choices of movies and television shows that revolve around doctors, nurses, and hospitals. Now, I'm going to open this up to everybody. Why do you think medical shows are so popular?
1: Well, I can think of several reasons. Uh, The first is that very few people can become doctors due to the decades of education and the several hundred thousand dollars it requires to become a doctor. Then there's the heroic nature of medicine with its lifelong devotion to others, the authority and respect that doctors command, of course, the mystery and the process of diagnosing rare diseases, and then finally, the morbid fascination when healthcare professionals go bad and violate their oath to their patients.
2: I agree, Dr. Lavity. I also think this interest in medicine crosses all decades. Um, if you look at popular TV shows here in the U.S., I can think of Marcus Wilby, M.D., in the late 60s, and even I watched, at my young age, reruns of M.A.S.H. Um, from the 70s.
3: There was also Neil Patrick Harris and *Doogie Hauser, M.D. ER was also popular and ran for 15 seasons.
2: And then you can't forget the more funny ones like Scrubs, Frasier, and the soap opera type of shows like General Hospital. I also watched that on rerun.
0: (laughs) I never watched General Hospital, but I can definitely remember sitting down with my family and watching MASH. It was a a regular event. Now, those are the U.S.-based shows. Uh, How were television shows back in Syria? Was it similar?
3: Well, I do not recall watching a specific show about doctors or medicine, but I've watched medical characters playing secondary roles in some shows, and the doctors there were always portrayed as heroes.
1: Well, I think what all this shows us is that we can see that depending on the decade, these shows follow which medical specialty is currently in vogue or is hot. For example, Dr. Wen, you mentioned MASH, and Dr. Reyes, you mentioned ER. These two focused on surgeons and emergency room doctors, respectively. I think these two specialties are favorite ones because they both can be fast-paced, and the very nature of them can be life and death. So they can pack a lot of drama and tension, as well as the heroic life-saving, into the one-hour time slot.
2: Likewise, I believe that the topic of forensics have always been fascinating to the public, all the way back uh, in books such as Sherlock Holmes. In the last decade, I think, uh, these type of detective stories have been, you would say, refashioned, stylized, or modernized, and now appeals to a new younger generation. I also think that, you know, a new form of media, media, documentaries or documentary series are also well liked now. I think audiences like to learn the who, what, why, how these true life events or based on true life events uh, stories occur. People love a good mystery and especially when uh, they're also helping out to try to figure out the crime and catch who did it. And these series afford them this uh, opportunity. Also, they're frequently tension or conflict with law enforcement or prosecutors and some bogus uh, but super quick, foolproof science.
0: Okay, at the risk of getting stoned by the forensic <laughs> community, I will admit that I like the original CSI, when it started, that is. <laughs> yeah. I know that there are so many inaccuracies with the show, but I've always looked at CSI as entertainment and I love the way that they had their imagery how they had their visuals and that really drew me into that particular show.
1: Oh this CSI <laughs> effect. Now Dr. Sung you say you liked CSI but you did preface your comment but there are many in forensics that don't necessarily love the media's fascination with their field. At first, we thought the media attention would attract more people into forensics, but the forensic disciplines are as woefully understaffed as before. We also thought that maybe the attention would bring scrutiny and better regulation of the disciplines, but in some courts, the parade of so-called experts and so-called science is as much a circus as before. Finally, we thought that at least we could enjoy some good whodunits like everyone else, but for most of us, what the media gets wrong about forensics irks us far more than the mystery excites us. And then, of course, there's how the forensic pathologists are usually portrayed in the media. We are usually stereotypically portrayed as people that are either socially awkward or downright antisocial. And here's our favorite. They are almost always eating lunch while performing autopsies, which are done maybe wearing a pair of gloves and that's about it. Because obviously wearing a mask would get in the way of all that eating and the aprons would hide the dirty scrubs and pot bellies that we all have. In other words, forensic pathologists are often used for a chuckle in an otherwise humorless story, movie, or show.
0: Okay, it's hard for me to hear myself defending these shows, (laughs) but I maintain that they're for our viewing pleasure. Let's face it, showing the delicate and difficult conversations that we have with grieving families or testifying to a jury about some complex case, just, it's not that fun to watch. And as for not wearing the basic PPE, I know that I have a face perfect for audio podcasts, (laughs) but... (laughs) Uh, TV producers and uh, movie producers, they pay a lot of money to show their beautiful actors and they don't want to cover them up with a respirator or those not-so-flattering blue gowns and uh, white bunny suits.
3: Okay, point taken. Something that does bother me in the media is the general lack of scrutiny on who is deemed the quote-unquote medical examiner or coroner. Oftentimes they are not forensic pathologists, but maybe general pathologists or other doctors in other medical specialties. In the real world, doctors practice in the specialties in which they have been trained and are board certified in. If a jurisdiction has access to a forensic pathologist, one who trained and is board certified and whose entire practice is performing medical-legal autopsies to determine the cause and manner of deaths. They will utilize this doctor over a pathologist who work in a hospital, has no training in forensics except for a few weeks in their pathology residency, has only performed a handful of autopsies, and has no access to forensic labs. While there are exceptions, like Dr. Ishikawa's practice in Hawaii, you don't want a forensic pathologist to read out general pathology slides, and you don't want a hospital pathologist to interpret blunt force head injuries. Also, oftentimes on these shows, the forensic pathologist travels to other states or countries to examine case as part of the story, In reality, pathologists can only perform autopsies in the states where they are licensed to practice medicine.
2: Now, I'm going to nitpick a little bit, per usual, um, but I think many a times the pathology in these types of shows are often described wrong. Like the words are mispronounced, medical explanations are simply just made up. And it amazes me that shows still have trouble with this, when they could simply Google, Wiki, even YouTube medical jargon. It's literally just a mouse click away. Um, there's so much fascinating and cool stuff in medicine that I really don't understand why science has to be made up, but it is on these shows. It also goes without saying that uh, the forensic pathology and laboratory science is twisted from reality, either uh, out of ignorance or because stating that the time of death is in a two-hour window or for obtaining DNA results fits the storyline better uh, than the realistic eight to 12 hours or even days to weeks that usually occurs in an autopsy.
0: Now I agree with all that, but uh, instead of us just sitting here ranting about TV shows, uh, for the past few weeks we've reviewed television portrayals of medical examiners or coroners that were suggested by our listeners, just to see what these shows got right and what they got wrong. We divvied up the list amongst ourselves and set out to watch a few of the episodes from each show. Now. I like watching TV just as much as the next person, but doing this was really stretching my definition of fun. (laughs) Maybe with the exception of Dr. Nguyen, who very wisely chose Dr. Mm -hmm. Rogers on Law and Order. For the rest of us, we want some of our hours back. So I'm going to start off with Dr. Lavity, who has probably one of the most famous medical examiner slash coroner TV shows.
1: Yes, we have to start with Quincy Emmy, the grandfather of all medical examiner and coroner based television dramas. Doctor Quincy was portrayed by Jack Klugman and ran for eight seasons from nineteen seventy six to nineteen eighty three. It originated as a ninety minute made for TV movie and was so popular that a sixty minute TV show was greenlighted. The show used the same actors in different roles, in different episodes, and Quincy himself appeared in every episode but one. That episode dealt with a body that had been brought to the morgue where it was determined to still be alive. And Klugman refused to appear in the episode as he thought it was insulting to portray Quincy as not realizing the person was still alive at the scene. Now this may seem ridiculous, except that this happened in 2020 in another county here in Michigan. Now Quincy was a forensic pathologist and medical examiner who worked at the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office. The show never revealed his first name, though his office door and business cards read Dr. R. Quincy. He was almost always at odds with the police, and a typical episode had Quincy conducting an investigation and finding the murder with little to no help from the police. He frequently left L.A. to find the killer, and he included his friends and girlfriends in these investigations. In later seasons... Quincy also got on a soapbox and addressed various social issues such as drunk driving laws and the dangers of punk rock music. (laughs) Go Fight City Hall to the Death is the first episode of the series. So let's start with what was good. Quincy wore gloves while examining the body at the scene, and the injuries are actually described fairly accurately. So what was bad? The victim's hands were placed in plastic bags at the scene and condensation occurs in plastic bags, so paper ones are preferred to preserve evidence. Quincy also declared that large, powerful hands broke the victim's neck. And as we all now know, neck fractures occur due to many factors, the age and health of the victim being the most significant, and you can't make any assumptions about strength. And Quincy used a floater, or a drowning victim recovered from the water after a length of time, to gross out a police academy class that was assigned to watch an autopsy well, okay, maybe sometimes we do do this. (laughs) And now what just was plain ugly. Quincy used racist Asian slurs to his assistant not even 10 minutes into this very first episode. He also invented a technique to lift fingerprints off the victim's neck, which was never explained, and it didn't end up working anyway. (laughs) And, of course, Quincy himself questioning the witnesses going to Mexico with his girlfriend to continue the investigation that included an exhumation. Now let's move on to Season 2, Episode 3, The Thigh Bone is Connected to the Knee Bone, which won the Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers Guild of America. So I had high hopes for this episode. (sighs) Okay. The good? Well. Quincy is teaching an elective course in forensic pathology in medical school. One student who cannot see that forensic is deceptively simple although it is actually extremely nuanced and hence is its own subspecialty for a very good reason, heckles Quincy right out of the gate. Quincy calls him on it, saying this is not a course in comedy, this is a course in pathology, and asks him to leave if he cannot take it seriously. While this seems ridiculous that an adult this close to being a doctor would act so juvenile and heckle an instructor, this actually has happened to me when I lectured on forensic pathology at a local medical school. Okay, now let's move on to the bad, everybody. So a construction worker finds a human thigh bone at a construction site. He notifies his supervisor, who laments that reporting it to the police will hold up the project that is already under a time crunch, and he tells the worker to dispose of the bone. Now, we can see that actually happening, particularly when projects are running behind deadline. But later on in the episode, Quincy's boss, after already knowing the bone is human, tells Quincy to stop the investigation and let it go. Now, this would cost the chief medical examiner his job and his medical license. This femur bone then makes its way to Quincy and his med school class. All right, now all of the ugly. Quincy acts like an anthropologist. He's not. And declares that everything can be determined from one bone. That being the identity, the height, the weight, the ethnicity, the nationality, the health, profession, and cause of death. Now, while some of this is true it's certainly not for all of it. He has this class conduct multiple tests on the bone, look up medical records on college students, and conduct interviews and investigation. All while Quincy is working with a police artist to recreate the entire man. Yes, that is face and all, and yes, from a single thigh bone, everybody. When he finally gets his actual lab to examine the bone, they declare that based on lead-deposited in the bone on electron microscopy that the victim was shot with a 32 caliber weapon. No, no, no. Finally, in a hospital corridor in Lubbock, Texas, and don't even ask what bogus science and conclusions got us all to Texas, Quincy grabs the gun from the killer's hand after the killer monologues and after Quincy explains in painful detail the criminal charges and sentencing to him. Now, unless Quincy is going to shoot the writers of this trek, No, no, no. Okay, now we'll move on to Season 8, Episode 8, Next Stop Nowhere, the infamous punk rock episode. Now, I'm a very private person, but anyone who knows me or visits this office while I'm working knows that I always perform autopsies in Nine Inch Nails t-shirts. And, of course, scrub pants and my PPE. So live shows were my oxygen during high school and college years, and I've seen hundreds and hundreds of shows. In 1990, at a tiny club in Detroit called the Latin Quarter, I saw Nine Inch Nails first open up for the Jesus and Mary chain, and then Peter Murphy a month later, and then finally headline a New Year's Eve show. Game changing. And I could do an entire episode on why there is no show like a Nine Inch Nails show and discuss the very best ones with you. And if it was not for this pandemic, I would have hit triple digits in shows attended. Now that sounds like a lot of shows, but it actually is just multiple shows per North American tour leg spanning 30 years. And well, I think that sounds less weird. So why am I oversharing? Well, there's only one way to watch a Nine Inch Nails show, and that is in the pit. This is not a show to simply sit or stand. And in these pits, I have been crushed, suffocated, kicked, and stomped. You know, broken, bruised, forgotten, sore but I have never been ice-picked in the neck while slam-dancing in a punk rock club like the victim in this episode. See, I knew I'd bring it back around for you guys. Okay, so what was good? The punk rock band Mayhem is a fictitious band, but actually sounds like an okay-ish cover band of the Dead Kennedys. Ministry fans will appreciate that Quincy's response to the victim's self-cutting is, Why would anyone want to pretend that every day is Halloween? And now there is new technology, folks, a computer system that checks fingerprints against a database. Hello, Automated Fingerprint Identification System, or APHIS. Okay, now the bad. Quincy declaring that punk rock music makes kids violent, which is a sentiment echoing the false rock music and devil-worshipping claims of the 80s. The killer was slipping the victim's girlfriend, Codeine, to which she was allergic, in order to kill her. But the girlfriend knew she was allergic and therefore would have recognized the signs and symptoms of the allergic reaction. And the ugly? well, Quincy, of course, has to go to a punk rock club to witness this thing called slam dancing. He then goes on a television show to rail against the evils of punk rock music and the stupidity of youth. He then goes back to the club and gets on stage to tell everyone in the club his theory of what happened, including the stabbing in the neck and the drugging with codeine and the name of who was responsible. Way to give the killer heads up, dude. And this is why doctors should not be doing the work of law enforcement. Okay, now let's move on to Silent Witness. So I
3: watched uh, Dr. Sam Ryan, who was the forensic pathologist in Silent Witness. She was portrayed by Amanda Burton and was the main character in the show. She worked at the beginning of the show in Cambridge, running a private morgue with her colleague. In the first episode, called Buried Lies, Dr. Ryan investigated the death of a six-year-old who was found floating in a river. Dr. Ryan performed the autopsy on her and she became suspicious when she noticed scar tissue on the kid's inner thighs from cigarette burns. She was also concerned by the discovery of broken ribs and suspicious bruising. Dr. Ryan stated that she could not assume that the child was drowned because there was no uh, water found in her lungs and there was no frothing at the mouth. She was not able to determine the cause or manner of death after autopsy. The suspicious nature of this death drove her to investigate another child death related to the same father. She went to a prison to meet another woman uh, who was there for murdering her daughter. The woman was taking the rap for the same guy who was the father of the girl who drowned she ultimately concluded that both of the girls were murdered by the father after she exhumed the body of the girl who was supposedly killed by her mother starting with the good i think the storyline is somewhat realistic considering that we often see evidence of abuse in battered children including healing rib fractures bruising, and scars. She was able to interpret some of the patterned injuries on the body. For example, the girl had abrasions on the palmar surfaces of both hands, which Dr. Ryan attributed to a friction burn caused by a rope swing that was near the seam. This can be discerned if there is a specific pattern to the abrasion which matches the shape of the rope. She also identified cigarette burns by the shape of the scars, which can have a characteristic appearance of round quarter-inch scars. Now moving to the bed, Dr. Ryan never wore a mask or head cover while she's examining the body. She based her findings mostly on external exam and x-rays. She also could tell that the decedent was eating sweets before her death which is very hard to see as food gets digested in the stomach. Also, I found it odd that she was interrogating the mom in prison, besides the detective who was there already. Overall, it was a good episode to watch, but it had some flaws. Now we'll move to Law & Order.
2: I had the privilege of examining the Dr. Elizabeth Rogers from the Law & Order series, or should I say, humongous franchise. I do have to say, uh, as Dr. Sung said, I had the easier of the shows amongst the Emmys here. The reason for this is because Law & Order has a very consistent format. First, someone dies. Then, an investigation ensues. And then someone always goes to court. Thus, I was able to figure out that Dr. Rogers typically only appears on each episode during the first five minutes when the decedent is at the scene and in the morgue, and then she reappears during the last five to 10 minutes when she possibly is testifying. Thus, I did not have to sit through hours of TV, just a cumulative couple hours through two seasons.
1: I think this tells the listeners who was the smartest of the (laughs) four of us. Uh, uh, Yes.
2: (laughs) That being said, let me give you a short intro on Dr. Rogers. Dr. Elizabeth Rogers was played by the actress Leslie Hendricks. She was not only in the original Law & Order series, but also the character was in the branching series, including SVU, Criminal Intent, and Trial by Jury. She actually is the longest reoccurring character of the Law & Order franchise and was one of the only five characters that have appeared in all these franchises. Uh, The character is a forensic pathologist and chief medical examiner in the New York City office of the chief medical examiner. Because, again, she is not the main protagonist on the show, her background is pretty vague. But through a couple episodes, I was able to figure out that she originally wanted to be a surgeon. But midway through her residency, she discovered she could not stand cutting into live persons. I can honestly say that I share this sentiment. I'm sure many others as well here. Her hobbies include classical music, books, and reading crime novels. Go figure. Besides that, after watching Dr. Rogers, I think she's intelligent, feisty, and a dedicated forensic pathologist that has a no-nonsense manner and is very confident. That being said, there were both highlights and lowlights when it came to accuracy in portraying forensic pathology in the show. Again, because my M.E. wasn't a main character and only appeared for a few minutes in each episode, I'm going to focus on recurring forensic pathology issues I saw during two early seasons of the original Law & Order, first starting off with the good. The morgue, or the autopsy suite, is pretty accurate on the series. It appears in a basement, and I commend the show for not glamorizing the room. It has old tiled surfaces, autopsy grossing stations, and even scales, and Old biological posters that all morgues seem to have hanging somewhere. (laughs) Also, all the MEs in the morgue do wear scrubs. Most of the time, I do see the MEs or the techs wearing gloves, but there are those few times where the gloved hands somehow are able to touch the body of the decedent, then the MEs' face, and then sterile papers. Big no-no in our field. I did want to discuss one particular episode that I believe accurately portrayed a social issue that MEs or forensic pathologists face today. In Season 14, Episode 11, a homeless man is found with injuries, facial fractures, tibia, fibula breaks, or we call them bumper fractures, and also evidence of car remnants like glass and paint on his body and clothing. In the episode, a woman admits to hitting the decedent with her car. Thus, Dr. Rogers determines the cause of death to be head trauma due to motor vehicle accident. We find out that the decedent's family is Jewish and would not like a full autopsy, meaning they didn't want an internal examination based on these religious grounds. Thus, Dr. Rogers obliges their request. But the defense submits a motion to conduct a full independent autopsy. The defense's consulting forensic pathologist then finds a subdural hematoma that appeared to be bleeding chronically. He also found contra-coup contusions to the brain. He states that these injuries ultimately caused his death, and since they were chronic, they must have occurred prior to the motor vehicle accident, and likely he was beaten. When Dr. Rogers is confronted by this opposing opinion, she admits that she missed these findings because she did not do a full autopsy. Again, she didn't do one because of family's wishes. To our audience, remember the medical examiner's job is to investigate deaths that are sudden, unexpected, suspicious, and violent. In states such as New York and Michigan, autopsies are performed at the discretion of the medical examiner to determine the cause and manner of death, meaning we, medical examiners, have the ultimate decision if we do an autopsy or if we don't. In instances, the medical examiner may take into account strong objection by the next of kin, especially for religious objections. Thus, I think in this episode, law and order accurately portrayed an ME taking into account a family's wishes. I'm sure that there have been many times that you all have had con- to consider family requests.
0: Yeah, sometimes this goes both ways. There's families who are requesting that we perform the mm-hmm. autopsy, but on the same token, there are those that really are wishing us not to perform an autopsy. And when we're confronted with those requests, we sometimes can actually speak with family members to see what it is that they're either objecting to or what it is that they want us to look for. And like I said, it goes both ways. Sometimes... We oblige their request, sometimes not, and we have to explain to them some of the potential complications of not performing an autopsy if they're really objecting to having one performed.
3: And I think that's a very important point that you mentioned here. We notify the family that there are complications for not performing uh, an autopsy if um, they want to go to court and prosecute whoever caused the death This might complicate the process of trial.
2: Now moving on to the bad. There are recurring loosely accurate forensic pathology concepts that are constantly utilized in many of the episodes of Law & Order. Again, as I said before, Law & Order episodes always have the same format. In the first five minutes, someone finds a body. After the body is found, an assistant medical examiner, not the deputy or the chief, is always on scene Telling the officers the time of death. Like, I mean, the exact time of death. And they frequently reference the body core temperature as their evidence for time of death. If you all have been listening to the other episodes of Detroit's Daily Docket, we recently discussed time of death and postmortem changes. On that episode, Dr. Lavty stated that time of death is an estimation based on postmortem changes and scene investigation. Again, it's an estimation. Thus, it can vary based on many factors, the decedent, weather, additional info, even amongst experts. Unfortunately, as Dr. Lavdi stated, it's not very accurate. Best that we can do is estimate time as hours for the first 24 to 36 days to weeks as body decomposes and months to years upon skeletonization of remains. Thus, in our Law & Order series, I think it is very rare that an Emmy would ever give a specific time, like 8 p.m., an unwitnessed death. Have any of my more seasoned mentors ever given the exact hour in which someone died?
1: Never. Never. (laughs) Exactly.
2: Exactly. Also, although we may use algor mortis or body temperature to help in determining time of death, it's not as easy as law and order depicts. Typically, it's unrectally or you stick a thermometer in the abdomen into the liver. There are also formulas that we can use Again, if you would like these formulas, listen to Season 2, Episode 4 of our podcast. There, Dr. Reyes explained the equations and that you have to utilize some assumptions that may not be true for each individual. Thus, I would say that in real-life forensic pathology, we would rarely ever just use body temp to estimate time of death. Another issue that reoccurred in law and order And similar to Dr. Reyes, is the amazing ability for Dr. Rogers to know exactly what the decedent ate and utilizing that for estimating time of death. For instance, in one episode, she could tell that the decedent ate chili dogs with specifically Tabasco sauce.
0: Hey, and don't knock Tabasco sauce.
2: Uh, First, who puts Tabasco sauce on their hot dog? I raised my hand. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, in this episode, uh, this was important because apparently only a specific restaurant in New York City is known to serve chili dogs with Tabasco sauce. And thus, they could find out when he had eaten in the restaurant. For our audience, although we regularly look, describe, and estimate volume of stomach contents and note that in our autopsy report, it is difficult to discern specific foods in stomach contents and utilize that to estimate time of death. The reason is because there are so many variables that affect gastric emptying time, including what type of food, such as is it liquid or solid, amount, the health of the decedent, and decompositional changes. Although law and order makes it look like all we have to do is look into the stomach, to accurately use stomach contents, the literature states proper evaluation for gastric emptying includes... Documenting the stomach contents, microscopic examination of the contents, examination of small intestine for undigestible markers, toxicology analysis, and then also the medical history of the decedent. There are some generalizations in textbooks that say a light meal will be in the stomach for about one and a half to two hours, a medium meal up to three to four hours, and a heavy meal up to four to six hours— One attending that I know uh, would tell me that readily identifiable food by the naked eye inspection was usually ingested within a two-hour period. But again, stomach emptying and thus stomach contents are a complex multifactorial process that seems to always be portrayed inaccurately in these TV shows. Again, for my seasoned colleagues, have you ever been asked the specifics of stomach contents in court? No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Neither have I. But on occasion, you can... You might be able to draw some information mm-hmm. from stomach contents if you have a decedent who is eating non-food and items that may lend support towards a cause of death. But in general, no is the answer. We don't look at stomach contents with a fine-tooth comb. And I can't even imagine trying to look at histology
2: from
1: oh. stomach <laughs> contents. I have to say, though, I think... What is more unbelievable than their use of the summit contents is that they want us to believe there's only one restaurant in New York (laughs) City that has Tabasco sauce (laughs) available to put on food. Agreed. Agreed.
2: Moving on to another inaccurate use of forensic pathology terminology in law and order. In each episode, Dr. Rogers is typically asked what the cause of death is. On multiple episodes, it is clear that they consistently confuse mechanism of death and cause of death in one episode she states the cause of death is internal hemorrhaging in another episode there was acute pulmonary edema i know my fellow forensic listeners of the audience are cringing again if you've been listening to the other episodes of our podcast specifically this season's episode one titled death certificate we had described the differences between mechanism of death cause of death and manner of death to reiterate cause of death is an injury or disease that produces a physiologic derangement that results in death. The specific physiologic derangement is considered the mechanism of death. For example, if I were to say, shoot, Dr. Sung in the abdomen, is that okay, Dr. Sung?
0: Well, as an aside, I think it's kind of funny that you asked me that (laughs) question. Not because I like guns, but actually because of where we trained. See, as our listeners know, Dr. Wen and I both trained at William Beaumont Hospital. (laughs) And for those geeky medical trivia people, Dr. Beaumont was very famous <laughs> for studying gastric digestion. And he, in fact, had a patient of his, I, f- I forget mm-hmm. his name, but uh, back in 1820s or so, where this uh, fur trader has sustained a gunshot wound to his stomach, and that wound never really healed It formed a fistula tract, And Dr. Beaumont would lower pieces of food tied to string into this gentleman's stomach, just to study gastric emptying. Mm -hmm. So if that's what you want to do to me, Dr. (laughs) Wynn, go right ahead.
2: And in the cafeteria, in the doctor's cafeteria, there's a painting of this in the cafeteria, if I remember correctly. But I'm glad you saw that, Dr. Sung. Well, let's say again, I shoot Dr. Sung in the abdomen. The bullet lacerates his aorta, and he exsanguinates and dies. The cause of death is gunshot wound to the abdomen. The mechanism of death, remember, the specific physiologic derangement, which in my example would be exsanguination. The reason this distinction needs to be made is because mechanisms of death have many different causes. Thus, if I were to just put exsanguination as a cause of death on a death certificate, no one would know that I shot Dr. Sung. Thus, it's important to accurately put the cause of death. So let's pick apart the law and order examples I gave you. Internal hemorrhaging. What do you all think?
0: Physiologic, not cause of death.
2: Exactly, exactly. We later find out in the episode that he was kicked So they do finally say, internal hemorrhaging due to kicking. I still cringe at this cause of death. I think our office would be more prone to say blunt force trauma. In the case of acute pulmonary edema, we later find out in the episode that it was due to flu. Or as Dr. Rogers more accurately stated, acute pulmonary edema, a direct result of the flu. Again, not what I would have written in my report. Likely, I would have just put pneumonia due to flu or even influenza pneumonia. To end my analysis of Dr. Rogers, I wanted to quickly debunk the most bogus inaccuracies in some of the episodes. First, as Dr. Laverty earlier stated, you are not allowed to eat in the autopsy room. In one episode, Dr. Rogers is eating a sandwich next to a decedent in the autopsy room. So wrong and not real. Second, no one is wearing masks or PPE, specifically N95 masks. It is the standard of our practice that during autopsies, especially if bodies have been surgically open, that everyone must don or wear an N95 mask. This is a regulation that we've had before COVID. In the early Law & Order episodes, the only time I see Dr. Rogers wear a mask is when they had a severely decomposed body and was avoiding the smell. Lastly, and maybe I'm just being a little too picky, in the early episodes, Dr. Rogers would describe the findings of her autopsies, both external and internal examination. But when they showed the decedents, the decedents never had a Y surgical incision. I guess she based all her findings on just the external exam and radiology.
0: Well, there is that movement of people uh, wanting vertopsy or virtual yes. autopsies mm-hmm. where they have combination of CT and MRI images. So maybe...
2: Maybe. Back in the <laughs> 90s, they were already doing it.
0: <laughs> oh, very good.
2: Now, going back to Dr. Reyes, who's going to review Rizzoli and Isles.
3: Rizzoli and Isles is an American crime drama television series starring Angie Harmon as Jane Rizzoli and Sasha Alexander as Maura Isles. It was hard for me to watch. There wasn't a lot of forensic content in the show. But I found that the third episode was interesting. In the third episode of the first season, Jane and Maura investigated the mysterious death of a young boy whose family is from Cape Verde. His mom stated that the boy changed after meeting skateboarders and that the devil got inside of him. (laughs) <laughs> Maura did not have a cause of death after autopsy, but told Jean that she found candle wax and burned feathers in his lungs. I don't really know how she could tell that on x-rays. All signs were pointing to an exorcism, according to the show, but uh, Dr. Isles refused to certify the death as exorcism. Somehow Jane comes up with the idea of testing the blood for a poisonous purple flower called Monk's Hood. This flower contains several poisonous ingredients that can result in death if a, a large amount was taken. Tux comes back positive for that flower and this apparently what killed the boy. Um, it, turns out that the boy was part of an exorcism event in the church that he was attending where he was given fluid or a drink that contains this flower. It is good that she did not certify the cause of death as exorcism, but she went through toxicology to determine the cause of death. Uh, There were several flaws to um, this show. First, the uh, autopsy room was very clean uh, without any blood uh, specks or any other bodies. There was only one body per uh, day. Um, the uh, decedents appeared to be very clean without any blood uh, leaking from their nose or mouths and the postmortem examination was mostly external I'm not sure if there are other episodes which show the why incision um, but i have only watched a few of them and they were more focusing on the personal lives of the detective and forensic pathologist rather than the forensic events in this show
1: so dr reyes if i understand you correctly <laughs> quincy had to uh, rail on about the dangers of punk rock music creating violence in youth and your show had that skateboarders, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> S- yes, skateboarders and skateboarders this put Satan <laughs> into the child, <laughs> yes. and yes. Okay. the devil did it. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure.
3: <laughs> Let's uh, move now to Psych by Dr. Song.
0: Yes, I watched the show Psych, and this show, similar to Law and Order, in the makeup where the coroner is not the main character Mm -hmm. of the show made it a little bit easier for me to watch this (laughs) now the show is a comedy so that made things a little bit easier also it's it's not meant to be taken seriously so some background information on psych it ran from 2009 to 2014 so quite a few seasons maybe not as many as law and order but it had a pretty good run and the coroner for this show entered in in season four and his name was Woodrow or Woody Strode and he was played by Kurt Fuller and like I said he was not the main character of the show now the show's psych revolved around two people they were uh, essentially people pretending to be psychics and one of the main characters his name was Sean Spencer he had this heightened observational skills where he had this incredible memory and incredible way of observing things. And his friend, Burton Buster, helped the Santa Barbara Police Department with their crimes using their quote-unquote psychic abilities. The way the coroner fit in, uh, just like law and order, somebody always got killed. (laughs) And the conclusions that the coroner came up with, I felt were pretty hard to swallow. Now, some accuracies of the show was that the morgue did, in fact, look like some of your standard morgues in the basement of a hospital. It had the tiles from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. The lighting was pretty poor, and it (laughs) had your standard autopsy table. But that's pretty much where the similarities ended. Some of the same themes are occurring over and over, and in fact, in this show also, there was an episode in late in season six where Doctor Strode, the coroner, was eating strawberries and I think it was creme fraiche <laughs> over the body of the decedent. And as I said, some of the conclusions that the coroner made were pretty ridiculous. In the episode in which the coroner first appeared, and this was in season four, there was a decedent that was recovered from a motor vehicle collision. And Dr. Strode, actually, I don't know that he was a doctor. They never really go over his background, but be that as it may, I will elevate him to being a doctor. (laughs) So Dr. Strode lists the injuries and he goes over the standard abrasions and contusions, but there was also a crushed larynx and fractured hyoid bone, which the doctor immediately associates with injuries that were consistent with a motor vehicle collision and thankfully the psychic or fake psychic was there and he made those observations and suggested that the decedent may have been strangled and ultimately the show episode resolved fine and the killer was caught no thanks to the coroner though (laughs)
2: Now, thanks to the psychic, though, yeah, thanks to the psychic.
0: Yes. The, the fake psychic <laughs> <Yes. laughs> and in another episode, this involved an individual who was shot by a weapon, and the coroner was able to determine exactly which rifle was used because he would use his own weapon to shoot uh, watermelons, steak, and planks of wood and liken the injuries to these artifacts to the gunshot wound on the decedent and that of course helped the santa barbara police find the actual killer but like i said the whole show in regards to the use of the coroner was pretty ridiculous (laughs) but entertaining because it was a comedy show the next show that i reviewed was body of proof and this was a short-lived show. It ran from 2011 to 2014, and the main character happened to be the medical examiner. And her name was Dr. Megan Hunt, and she was played by Dana Delaney. And the background of Dr. Hunt was that she was a very prominent and highly intelligent neurosurgeon. And it happened one day, she was driving her car, and she was having an argument with her ex-husband about various expousal things, and she got into an accident, and unfortunately for her, she sustained some injuries and some paresthesias, which prevented her from doing neurosurgery. And in fact, one of her patients died from some incident that stemmed from Dr. Hunt's inability to perform surgery. From that, they're a little fuzzy on how she became a medical examiner, but they claim that she was an actual forensic pathologist, and in order to be a forensic pathologist, you have to go through pathology residency and fellowship. They don't explain that in the show, but let's just once again elevate her to a forensic pathologist. But this show was equally unbelievable in regards to medical examiners, not because she was super intelligent. In fact, we have many super intelligent people working with us, but the way that she went about it was very difficult to even accept. For example, similar to something that Dr. Nguyen mentioned, she could literally tell you the cause of death without even performing an autopsy. (laughs) Just examining the body externally does give some information, but of course the reason why we open up a body is to see the injuries internally and the disease processes internally. Similar to what Dr. Reyes described, much of the show was not necessarily about the medicine, but about the internal conflicts that Dr. Hunt had. Other things that were also very similar, nobody wore respirators. Once again, you have to see the people's faces, and she had beautiful red hair, which flowed over her autopsy gown. You know, very, <laughs> you know, pre- <laughs> <laughs> and the autopsy suite was immaculate. It really was very beautiful. Uh, It was rather small and had a single table and I think some glass walls that anybody could just walk around and start viewing an autopsy at. But overall, she performed things that a typical medical examiner would not do. For example, she did question witnesses. She went to crime scenes and did her own investigations. And in fact, on one episode She confronted the killer, uh, grabbed the gun away from the killer, and then made essentially a citizen's arrest on on the killer. So all in all, fairly unbelievable.
2: So not good enough hands for neurosurgery, but good enough enough hands to do autopsies and do a citizen arrest. Yes. Okay.
1: (laughs) Okay. So we're going to end with Rosewood. Dr. Beaumont Rosewood was portrayed by Morris Chestnut for the show's two seasons from 2015 to 2017. It was generally panned and got bad reviews, and after watching three episodes, I, too, want an explanation (laughs) for how this even got a second season. Dr. Rosewood was a private pathologist working in Miami, Florida, so he was not trained in forensic pathology, nor was he a coroner or medical examiner. According to IMDb, his state-of-the-art laboratory equipment, Sherlock Holmes-like powers of deduction, and quick wit are his main tools. Oh, why did I choose this show to watch? Okay, the good can be summarized as this. The episodes have clever titles such as fashionistas and fasciitis, aortic atresia and art installations, and thorax, thrombosis, and threesomes. Someone Googled medical words, but why? Why could they not read what they actually meant? I watched the pilot episode, which has no such clever title. The series starts with Rosewood out for a jog and happens upon a crime scene, a jumper off of a high-rise. The detective on the case does not know who Rosewood is, but he is allowed to crash the crime scene. He asks the medical examiner to show him the eyes and the gums of the victim and declares, without an autopsy or examination of any injuries, that he had terminal cancer, specifically a pancreatic tumor blocking the bile duct, And after protracted vomiting resulting in dehydration, the man committed suicide. Now, I'm sure the writers thought that they were dropping the mic five minutes into the show, but this is so insulting to both police and pathologists alike. Okay, his private lab. Well, you walk up to a wall of windows, allowing you to see everything going on inside, and you simply walk through the door. And 10 feet away are his assistants running laboratory tests. So clearly, lab safety and regulation and accreditation are not concepts in this universe. His autopsy was performed on a Mission Impossible-like soundstage, and he wore no PPE or protection other than one pair of gloves. And the reason for this is apparent, because his autopsy of a motor vehicle accident victim consists solely of touching one hand and using a black light, and that's it. They then found a word like patikia that they liked and then made up some nonsense about what it signifies, fabricated additional nonsense about bruising on the hands and whether or not the hands were limp at the time of impact, and then finished it off with an entirely made-up term and its significance regarding frostbite on the victim's feet from dry ice holding her foot onto the gas pedal. We then hear about how his sub-gastric analyzer found saltines, almond butter, and whiskey sour in the victim's stomach, and that it was consumed a few hours before her accident. Okay, then more lies about how hair and nails continue to grow after death, that hair changes color after death due to anti-motion sickness medication, and then, of course, Rosewood has to accompany the detective everywhere to question the witnesses, conduct the investigation, and help catch the killer. Season 1, Episode 7, Quadriplegia and Quality Time, was the big Forensic Experts in Court episode. I won't bother you with the actual case because it's all made up. Rosewood is the expert for the prosecutor, and his father, who is also a pathologist, is an expert for the defense. Can anyone say conflict of interest? (laughs) His father is in the courtroom while Rosewood is testifying, and this actually does occur with medical experts. Courts will allow one expert to hear the other testify and then immediately take the stand to rebut the testimony, as this saves court time and it saves the lawyers from trying to interpret complex testimony to the other expert. But while Rosewood is testifying, his father is holding up signs to him, and he, instead of testifying, responds to his father. Can anyone say unprofessional and contempt of court? It also comes out that his father is retired and is no longer performing autopsies and Rosewood, the big-time private pathologist, does four autopsies a week. Four. <laughs> okay. Then we're going to end this with Season 1, Episode 15, Atherosclerosis and the Alabama Flim Flam, which centers around a pathologist found dead in his hotel room while attending a pathology conference in which Rosewood was the guest speaker. Rosewood presents a case that was ruled a heart attack but was actually due to the decedent's wife shoving broccoli in his airway and choking him to death. How does Rosewell know this? Well, the victim's last meal was Muhugai pan, which does not contain broccoli. So apparently Rosewood never heard of special requests at restaurants. The dead pathologist was killed by something similar. The writers are apparently fascinated by ice because this dead doctor was killed by someone shoving ice cubes into his airway. Now, note to those who are thinking of ways to kill someone and get away with it for this podcast's final episode of this season. While broccoli in the trachea could kill you, good luck getting it there without any injuries or drugs that would reveal the truth. And don't even think about the ice. Besides the how to do it, it would melt before anyone could asphyxiate. The one correct thing in this episode... It was completely by accident, as the scenes were clearly written to indicate that the Coconut Grove medical examiner was country simple by not recognizing the awesomeness of Rosewood. When Rosewood goes to that medical examiner's office, where the dead doctor was taken, he demands to see the body, and the medical examiner correctly declines his request, as it is not Rosewood's jurisdiction or his case. Rosewood, though, then returns and threatens to call higher-ups, and the medical examiner finally relents thus the writers having undone the only accurate thing in this episode.
0: I think it's clear that these shows have uh, common or similar themes when it comes to medical examiners and coroners, most of which is unfortunately uh, inaccurate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Of the TV shows that we watched, was there something that you found redeeming about them? Did you like watching the shows?
2: I have always been a fan of Law & Order, so I actually enjoyed the series, and I enjoy the Emmys on that series, because I think it actually portrays it pretty well, that um, in cases uh, such as when an individual dies, that it's a team effort. You have investigators, you have the Emmy, you have the laboratory, and they actually send out their labs in Law & Order, so that's accurate. Um, So I think the redeeming thing is that it does show, at least Law & Order did, that cases like this, cases that we do, it's a team effort, and there's a lot of moving mechanical parts.
3: Silent Witness show was good overall, but the characters were cold, stiff, and the background music uh, was terrible.
1: (laughs) I don't know. I have always loved Law and Order. Mm -hmm. My husband and I, we've watched it so much that we know uh, when the actors start to recur what previous season and episode they were actually in. Um, so I would say that her portrayal certainly has never impacted my enjoyment of the show.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can't say that body of proof would be on my <laughs> Netflix top list. <laughs> but if you're looking for a laugh, sure, watch Psych. Well, thank you everyone again for listening to another episode of Detroit's Daily Docket. And just as Dr. Laverty has said, please, if you have scenarios in which you think you can get away with murder, please forward that to our Instagram page or contact us via email. Thank you again.
1: Thank you for joining us on Detroit's Daily Docket. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Detroit's Daily Docket. Our theme song is Living by Read the Sun and our podcast cover art is by Hollow Wicked Prince. Thank you for listening.